3: New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com
1: slash live.
3: Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily
0: Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Internet isn't the only phenomenon that unites us globally.
4: We're essentially inside the storm, Diane. It is just to our south, and we're easily getting into some of the worst gusts. 60 to even 74 miles per hour, that threshold of hurricane force, one of the worst storms that has ever hit Atlantic City. This city is basically underwater.
2: When Hurricane Sandy stormed stormed onto the the East Coast in October 2012, it lived up to its advanced billing by atmospheric scientists. scientists. Here was a massive event combining two storms and a hurricane, and it would deliver a historic wallop to the eastern seaboard.
3: But was Hurricane Sandy a once-in-a-lifetime perfect storm, a rare phenomenon, or an example of the new normal pattern of global weather?
2: Our Earth climate unites us all, and our inadvertent tinkering with it has led to changes on a massive scale. Few parts of the world are untouched. But a warmer climate isn't the only thing that circles the globe. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: And I'm Seth Shostak. From viruses to ideas to reporters without borders, we're going global on Big Picture Science. We heard the stories about the hurricane damage from those who lost homes and businesses, and in some cases loved ones, as the wind raged and the water rose. But for this story of what caused the devastating storm surges behind the destruction... We need the perspective of atmospheric physics.
5: Okay, I'm Jerry Meal. I'm a senior scientist here at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado.
2: Jerry Meal and other atmospheric scientists monitored Hurricane Sandy as it approached, as they do with every major storm. This one embedded three storms, a hurricane colliding with a northern and also a western storm system. So Sandy made headlines. But its force didn't surprise climate scientists who have been forecasting an uptick in the severity of storms for years.
5: Well, it's a very interesting case study of a hurricane that merged into a winter storm in the mid-latitudes. And that merging process made it very severe, huge scale and wide-ranging and very extensive and all kinds of other things happen in association with it.
3: So, in a sense, it was a kind of a singular event, uh, one of these perfect storm kind of things. It's, it's not something that we see frequently. I mean, how frequently do you get that combination of ingredients that make for such a destructive event?
5: Well, every 10 years or so, um, you get these cases of a hurricane that merges into a, a winter storm, but they're fairly rare. The most, probably most famous one was 1991, the so-called perfect storm where a similar kind of thing happened, where a uh, hurricane merged into a winter storm and then uh, caused a lot of problems. But most of the devastation from that was on shipping and, and occurred out over the North Atlantic. There were some coastal impacts and some casualties along the shore, but... That one kind of stayed more out over the ocean. I think what made this uh, Sandy unique is that it actually made landfall just as it was transitioning from a hurricane to a winter storm.
3: Could you really ascribe Sandy to climate change? Can you connect it in any way?
5: Well, Sandy occurred in the context of a changed climate. So we're experiencing a warmer climate now than we have at any time since we've been keeping records. So every weather event that happens now is being affected in some way by this new so-called new normal, new base state, this warmer base state climate. Now, exactly how Sandy was affected by uh, this background change in climate that we've been experiencing will probably take at least several months to figure out. But I think the thing you have to realize that is everything's being affected by this warmer climate now. And it's just a matter of trying to figure out exactly how Sandy was affected and in what ways it was affected by this warmer climate we're living in.
3: I've heard climate scientists claim that what global warming will do is not necessarily produce more frequent storms, but simply that storms will be on average more severe.
5: Well, that's some of the indications coming from climate models with regards to hurricanes. And these are from climate models that resolve some aspects of hurricanes. We're still improving those, uh, the types of models that we can use to study uh, future hurricanes. But the indications are from those studies are that uh, overall there would be fewer hurricanes that would form, but the ones that would form would be more intense. What made Sandy unique, of course, was that it wasn't a particularly strong hurricane, but it was this merger with this uh, winter storm that was coming across the northern tier of states right as it made landfall that made it so unique and so uh,
3: destructive. There was considerable damage in the northeast of the United States caused by Sandy, and in particular in New York, a loss of power, flooding of the subways, and so forth. New York, of course, was warned about the possibilities of these sorts of storms. Were people paying attention? Did they do what they should have done, in your opinion?
5: Well, I think from, from a science point of view, I think one of those amazing aspects of this is how well this uh, storm was predicted. The models are already indicating that there was a good chance that this would take this storm that looked like it, this hurricane that looked like it was just going to head out into the North Atlantic and head over towards Europe, was going to take this very strange, sharp left-hand turn and go straight into the northeastern U.S. Again, 50 years ago, you would have never been able to make that kind of prediction. You needed a numerical model or model that we use to predict these kinds of things uh, that run on supercomputers. That's the only way you could have made that prediction is using that kind of a model. And these are the kinds of models that we're using not only to make weather, Predictions but also to look at climate variability and climate change, so I think that that was a really amazing forecast of something that you wouldn't have anticipated if you were just looking at weather maps without the aid of any kind of computer modeling tools so that that in itself I think was a real interesting aspect of the storm that it was so well predicted.
3: Well, finally, Jerry, you know, there are still people who question whether climate change is happening or whether it's due to us or is something completely natural that we don't really need to pay a lot of attention to and to curb, for example, carbon dioxide emissions and so forth. Do you see a possible uh, silver lining in the clouds of Sandy that, <laughs> that, that maybe more people will pay attention now?
5: Uh, well, you know, it's I think that a lot of the extreme events we've been seeing really uh, gotten people's attention. You know, the severe heat last summer, the tremendous wildfire season we had. And and this was not just severe heat, this was record-breaking heat, record-breaking wildfires. Sandy was a record-breaking storm. And so I think people are starting to maybe kind of get this comprehension that these storms and fires and heat, we've been experiencing that for years and we'll continue to experience it. But now we're into this kind of... We're into this new regime where this is not just kind of severe heat. It's record-breaking heat, record-breaking storms. And so I think it's that aspect that climate change does bring to it because, like I said, we are in this kind of newer, warmer environment. And um, as far as, you know, in in living memory and certainly since records have been kept, we haven't lived in this kind of of warm environment. So I think a lot of these things are unprecedented and are record-breaking, and I think that is getting people's attention.
3: Jerry Meal, thanks so very much for talking with me. Sure.
2: Thanks. Jerry Meal is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Well, it's amazing to think that people are resistant to accepting the uh, science of climate change after all this time, if they are. Or at least they seem reluctant to do anything about it.
3: But, you know, maybe people don't want to listen to the atmospheric physicists, the meteorologists, the biologists, the oceanographers. But I know whom they might listen to because... There are some groups out there who've kind of gotten a jump start on this whole climate change business. Let me make a quick call here.
1: Hello, this is Gina Luciano from Gallagher Construction Services.
3: Oh, hi, Gina. This is Seth Shostak at the radio show Big Picture Science.
1: Hi, Seth. What can I do for you?
3: Well, we've just heard about the fact that Thanks to climate change, future storms are likely to be the norm, if you will. So what I want to know is, from somebody who deals with insurance, if I lived in Florida or somewhere low-lying on the East Coast, what would I have to do to get hurricane insurance?
1: You mean right now at the heels of what's just happened on the East Coast? Yes. You probably couldn't do very much to get any kind of hurricane insurance right now because I think insurance companies aren't going to sell any insurance for hurricane until they figure out what this disaster will cost.
3: Well, to what extent is climate change having an effect on insurance rates? Is it having any effect?
1: Yes, although in the insurance industry, um, companies don't like to use the terminology climate change because it's such a politicized terminology, but they do use things such as aberration in climate or radical changes in natural catastrophe. And if we look, even if we look at the last five years uh, and you are a homeowner, we can tell you that the insurance rates have increased substantially anywhere from 40 to 75 percent.
3: Is that just for low-lying areas or, or is that essentially anybody who wants hurricane insurance?
1: Uh, well, it's everywhere. The rates are increased everywhere, although not as extensively if you're not in a hurricane zone. But you will still feel the fact of the rate increases because it can't all of a sudden increase 500% to someone who lives in New York City so what they try to do is spread the increase in prices so if you lived in in texas or oklahoma for example you could easily get hurricane insurance they don't they don't mind hurricanes so much the insurance companies don't because they don't occur as frequently but what they will worry there about they will worry about hail and tornadoes which happen more frequently
3: Gina, you say aberrations in climate. I mean, I know about aberrations in personalities. Well, what do insurance companies include under that term?
1: Well, we have snowstorms. We have blizzards, like the huge snowstorms on the East Coast last year in October. Tornadoes, floods, fires, um, and other heavy weather and hail, as I mentioned. It's all kinds of catastrophes.
3: It seems to me, Gina, that, you know, there's a lot of discussion about climate change and people believe this or they don't believe this or whatever, but your business, you're where the rubber meets the road. You see a real effect that doesn't sound like a small effect when you talk about a 40% increase in rates.
1: Uh, No, it's a big effect. And in fact, more and more what's happening is that the insurance, the private industry are no longer going to or started to cancel homeowners policies, or at least they don't offer any catastrophe insurance. So they have to rely upon government sponsored programs such as FEMA or the National Flood Insurance Program.
3: Are you seeing the same sort of effect globally? I mean, do people offering insurance in other countries, are they doing the same thing?
1: Absolutely, because insurance in general is not limited. The insurance companies have to buy insurance themselves. And it affects the entire world. So it will be insurance in England, for example, Lloyd's of London, that offers what we call reinsurance. It's when the insurance company buys other insurance to protect them from having to pay very, very, very large losses and send them into bankruptcy. Yes, it affects the whole world. And of course, catastrophes have occurred in the entire world.
3: So if someone says to me they're skeptical that climate change is really having any effect Maybe I should just tell them to call up their local insurance broker. Absolutely. Gina, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, I hope I haven't scared your listeners too much. Bye, Gina. Goodbye, Seth. Thank you.
3: Well, she didn't scare me because all I worry about is earthquakes. But it was good to talk with Gina Luciano over in San Francisco.
2: Well, she might be able to get you a deal on earthquake insurance.
3: Well, that would be great shakes. Coming up, what American science looks like from the other side of the Atlantic.
2: We're going global on Big Picture Science. for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to
1: redeem some serious prizes, press two.
2: We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Well, there are a few things that can move faster than hurricane winds, such as ideas. But despite how fast the tweet, OMG, my cat ate an entire pizza and he only paid for half of it, can travel around the world, there are some ideas that stay stubbornly rooted at home. Welcome back to Going Global on Big Picture Science.
2: Take the case of the science of climate change. Now, most of the world accepts the evidence that the world is warming, and indeed, countries perched dangerously close to the water's edge, such as Holland, have spent billions hoping to mitigate the effects of a rising sea. But in the United States, there is still, if not an outright denial of climate change, a head-in-the-sand resistance to acting decisively on the facts. Sandy reminds us that we delay doing so at our peril.
3: So the acceptance of climate change science has a local flavor. It's still met with resistance here in the United States. But what about other scientific issues? Alok Jha has some perspective on that as a science correspondent for The Guardian across the pond in the U.K. Alok, you report on science in the U.K. And, you know, it's my impression, having lived in Europe for a while myself, actually, that the Europeans are considerably more interested, on average, in science than they are in this country. Is is that your impression
4: as well? Well, I suppose it's hard to quantify something like that. But the anti-science brigade in the U.S. is certainly more vocal than they are in the U.K. There are people who are anti-science in the U.K., but no one really pays much attention to them, and they don't have much political power. Here in the U.S., the problem is you've got a whole industry of people like climate change deniers and things who make the anti-science case seem really kind of loud. Um, I suppose that gives you a sense that there's fewer people here interested in actual science. Um, I still think, I'm sure, that many, many, many millions of people here are fascinated by the results of science and love reading about it. Um, In the UK, I would say that all the newspapers have science correspondence and report on science regularly, but it tends to be much more that people are interested in the health stuff, you know, what's going to cure you next, whether something's going to give you cancer. At the mainstream end, it's not any different, I think. We do have a lot of very good uh, magazines and um, reporters and writers who, you know, go into detail. So yeah, I mean, I think that we're interested, definitely. Yeah, well, a lot of that actually does obtain,
3: for this country as well, uh, the New York Times science section, which is perhaps the biggest science section of any paper now, uh, is more and more slanted toward health issues because that obviously has direct personal application. People are interested in that. But the the hard science, it's hard to find. There aren't too many stories about physics and so forth. There's some. Now, NASA would say, yes, people are interested in what we're doing in space. So there is that. But, you know, we're here in the Silicon Valley, There's a local paper here that serves millions of people. They got rid of all their science section. I wonder if this isn't a matter of history. Uh, You know, in some sense, you could say Europe invented modern science. I think that's very fair to say.
4: And and America invented, uh, you know, the frontier mentality. Well, but also America is the biggest and best country for science in the world. There's no doubt about that. Most publications, most citations most Nobel Prize winners and this, this is not a country that is in any way second to anyone else and a lot of the stories I write about are involving American scientists in some way. I mean I'm not going to say that Britain isn't also great at science we are but uh, we're definitely number two just because of our size. So I don't think it's that's the, 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 the reason for lack of interest in newspapers. Newspapers have another problem altogether which is that they're all running out of business they don't have any money, they're cutting everything and you, you're right in the US the health and science correspondents on many newspapers and especially TV have just disappeared. CNN seems to have got rid of all of its uh, environment and science staff, which is rubbish Mm. and awful, especially given the challenges we face in society. Whether you want to know about the stars and all these wonderful things that are very pretty, but the big challenges we face, you know, poverty, um, climate change, hunger, disease, these are all scientific challenges. You need people who understand the science and the politics to really report them. And... You know, newspapers and news organizations that get rid of specialist knowledge in their newsrooms are going to really rue the day they did that because they're not going to be able to provide any sort of interesting, nuanced analysis of these things. And I'm I'm saying this, you know, not, not because I think that politics is not important too, but um, it's not everything and it's not enough. We routinely see opinion pieces
3: which suggest that, you know, America's failure to interest young people in science is going to have, you know, Lugubrious consequences for this country down the
4: road, and not very far down the road. Especially given that China is investing heavily in science, and India is investing a lot in science, those countries within 20 or 30 years might challenge the U.S. as the number one. Uh, And in fact, I think maybe a couple of years ago, actually, that the number of publications is rising in China so greatly that by the next decade, I think China might have more publications than the U.S. Now, quality is another issue, of course, but. Your your students here in America will just go over there to study. People will go over there to study, and China might become the scientific superpower by the middle of the century. We're already seeing some of that if you go to Stanford
3: University, which isn't too far from here, and uh, you go to the physics department and you look at the graduate students. uh, A very large fraction of them are from Asia, uh, from China in particular, and whereas in the past they would apply to positions here in the United States, now they go back to China. It's the same in the U.K.? Yeah. Something you mentioned that I found interesting, you mentioned climate change. Uh, An issue that we have here in the United States, which I'm not sure you have, is the matter of Darwinian evolution, which is a British invention, too, if you will. (laughs) And, and, you know, here, something like uh, 40 percent of the public doesn't believe in it at all. And a majority of the public feels that, well, yes, maybe you could uh, teach Darwinian evolution in biology class, but you also ought to teach creationism. Teach the controversy which is a terrible idea.
4: (laughs) Why is it that this is not, apparently, an issue in the UK? Well, I would say that there are many people in the UK who also believe in creationism. I mean, that's all that intelligent design is. I'm not going to beat about the bush. Uh, Intelligent design, uh, this idea that something created the beginnings of life, which then evolved, and and so on. There are lots of people who believe that, and, and people who try and get it onto the curriculums of various schools. And... You know, the latest government has allowed lots of people to start up their own schools now. And that involves people who actually sometimes teach these sorts of things. And and there's enough respect for the scientific method and the higher echelons of power, I think, to know that this is not, A, a vote winner, and B, something that you should do to in, in science lessons. But, but why isn't it a vote winner? Because it would be a vote winner in, in many parts of this country. I think country. That, that it's tied to religion. It has to be tied to religion. In the UK, religion is important. It's a, we're an officially Christian nation. Unlike the US, church and state are not separate. Um, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. But... Despite that, church does not feature really in political decision-making. There are some bishops in the House of Lords and, you know, most people say that they shouldn't be there. We're a very secular country in that respect. And why that is, I couldn't tell you. You'd have to speak to a religious scholar. But given that that is the case, I think that it means that religious ideas in science lessons won't fly. And and there's enough people who will say that loudly enough to make sure that politicians don't take it too seriously either. Yes. Well, this seems to be true throughout
3: Europe. uh, Europe in general is a less religious area than the United States. This is not an issue. Uh, Some people would say, so what? Does it matter? Do they really need to learn
4: evolution at high school level? Well, I I don't know. I I, I would say yes, because I find it's such a fascinating and brilliant and lovely idea. And as someone who likes human ideas, you know, if you appreciate art, uh, if you appreciate literature, I mean, evolution is such a lovely, wonderful idea. And it's so important. I mean, that's I would say yes, but you know, do you have to know it no of course you don't but 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 what's but but what, maybe what? you do have to know it right I mean,
3: this is going to be the century of biology, at least some people say that right and and the whole fundament of biology is evolution
4: yes, that's right I mean but we're talking about molecular biology now, and evolution is the grammar on top of which uh, all of other biology exists so you do need to know it it's it's a basic um, but but to your question of whether You know, it should be in in schools or not. I think it should. But what's important is that it's not taught alongside something that is patently not right and which confuses children to thinking that these are two comparable ideas that you can choose between them. That's not the case. And children should be taught critical thinking. They should be taught to um, understand evidence. And these are more important things than knowing an individual theory. And 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 you know, you can say once you've taught them that they can. Decide for themselves. What's wrong is to say, in a science lesson, this is just a theory, and here's another theory which sits alongside. It. If you're a kid, how do you know? How on earth would you know the difference?
3: Finally, Alok, a, uh, a subject that's somewhat close to my heart for obvious reasons. In this country, roughly one third of the populace believes that uh, extraterrestrials are visiting our planet
4: buzzing the countryside and so forth. Do, do you find this in the UK as well? I guess there must be people like that. I suppose we don't have such a rich history of uh, science fiction culture, and X-Files and the Twilight Zone and things, which uh, allow us to express... You them. have the Daleks. <laughs> Doctor Who. Doctor Who, of course, of course. Uh, Yes, in that case, I think aliens are amongst us, and and Doctor Who proves it. It's a documentary. It's not a fiction program. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're not worried about this. Didn't the Ministry of Defense... uh, The Ministry of Defense does uh, occasionally... Uh, release its UFO files and then it's, it's wonderful for for us on newspapers because we have such fun with it. So they release all the reports of uh, aliens and yeah, they track these things and we have sightings and they're the same as the ones in America. It's usually over farms you get weird lights and someone who's obviously drunk a bit too much moonshine has uh, seen something so make your own conclusions about whether that's true or not. Well, uh, there are people who will
3: point to Hampshire and Wiltshire these strange uh, <laughs> designs that appear in the crops there crop at the circles. end of the summer.
4: Yes, Yes, of course because um, space travel is incredibly hard. You know, the ideas of going many, many light years across the universe is going to be very difficult. Uh, you need incredible technology. And, of course, if aliens did develop that, what they would do is come to Earth and flatten some of our crops and go away again. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that insight. Alec Job. thank you so much for talking with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Seth.
2: Alak Jha is a science correspondent with The Guardian in the U.K.
3: Well, clearly, uh, you know, science is international, Molly. So their ideas about science, it's interesting to hear how they differ from those here in the United States.
2: That, well, that's right. And they're also uh, not just scientific journalists who are collaborating and sharing ideas, but scientists themselves. I mean, science is, by nature, collaborative.
3: Yes, it's it's collaborative and it's international. Uh, but one thing that we do have going here that's a little bit singular is the Silicon Valley. The whole world knows about the Silicon Valley, and there are a lot of people in the world that would like to be part of the Silicon Valley. Seth, I have the perfect
2: person you should talk to right now. You know who's here visiting, and I just saw him in the hall. No, is who? Is Max Marty. He is the one that started that project, Blue Seed. Max is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will well, you hang on? Okay, okay, I okay I this like is perfect. Okay, hand. Hey, Max. Hi, Hi Max. Max. Do you have a few minutes?
6: Yep, yep, sure. Why not?
2: So this is what we were thinking. Um, We're doing this show called Going Global, and um, Seth was just talking about innovation here in the Silicon Valley, and we were talking about science innovation around the world. Can you talk about Blue Seed? Do you have some time right now? Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, you sit down here.
3: Uh, All right, Max, uh, give us your ID, your title. Well, I'm
6: uh, Max Marty, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Blue Seed.
3: Okay, now look, what problem are you trying to solve with Blue Seed? Why did you found this operation?
6: Well, look, there's a lot of people all around the world who have great ideas, maybe the next big thing, the next Google or the next, next big tech company, and they would all love to come here to Silicon Valley in order to pursue that dream and that goal. This is, in fact, the best place in the world to start a high-tech company. But they're, unfortunately, they're not able to do so right now. What, what do you mean they're not able to do so? There's an airport down the street. Oh, of course. You can fly in and you can, you can go to a party in San Francisco, but what you can't do is work. You can't do what the government considers work. So you can't start a company and then pull out a paycheck or whatever you'd like to do. Well, when you say
3: work, Max, you're talking about high-tech work, You know, going into the garage and writing that new piece of software that will revolutionize a, an industry or create the killer app. Why can't they come here?
6: Well, this is all so new, this whole economy, this whole way of innovating has only really come about in the past 10 or 20 years. And the policies, the immigration policies that we have were written far before that. And uh, unfortunately, they were written for a different era where the economy was not set up that way. It was usually big companies who wanted to bring in personnel to work on existing projects, not people who wanted to come here and start something completely new. Okay, so I'm
3: some guy half a world away. I've got that idea for the killer app. (laughs) But I want to come to the Silicon Valley because that's where the people are who can make it happen and yet I can't. I can't just come here, rent an office, and do it. How are you going to help that?
6: What we're doing is we're creating a community where people will be able to come from around the world and do just that. But in order to do that, we have to be outside of the U.S.'s immigration and customs jurisdiction, which means we have to be 12 miles off the coast of California in international waters. Now, what that means is you're going to be living and working quite literally on a ship in the ocean that's going to be, it's going to be sitting there. It's not going to be going anywhere. And... You can come in and out of the country on a business and tourist travel visa rather than a work visa if all you intend to do is, is speak to investors or go to a party and such. You're not going to be doing any work, so you're not going to be running your company while you're here. That's going to be all on the ship, but you will be able to come in and out. You're talking about
3: a floating Silicon Valley annex, it sounds like. I mean, wait, would there really be offices and, and living quarters on this ship 12 miles off the coast here? Even more than
6: that, you could get cafes and theaters, all the sort of things that you would need in order to feel uh, to feel at home and, and relaxed and happy enough to be able to work on uh, on the next big idea.
3: I have to say, Max, my, my first reaction to this is, this sounds a little bit crazy. Have you tried to do any market research? Have you found people who would say, yes, I am going to want office space on your floating business habitat? <laughs> uh, so,
6: so, Seth, it, it is definitely radical. Uh, that's, that, there's no question about it. But the thing is, I think this is a problem that at this point needs a radical solution because the political solutions just haven't been forthcoming. And so far, we have over 300 companies and over 1,000 entrepreneurs, individual entrepreneurs from 62 different countries who are very interested in coming
3: on board. All right. So now this thing isn't going to actually go anywhere. It's not going to go down to, uh, I don't know, Baja, California, you know, just for a bit of a vacation or, or up the inside passage to Alaska. It's just going to sit there, right? It's just going to be anchored in place. That's right. Okay. So, I mean, how do I get off this thing? It isn't going anywhere. How do, how do I how do I get back to, you know, downtown Silicon Valley?
6: Well, there's two ways. Uh, so one is if you have enough money, there there is the helicopter option. And, uh, you know, for a VC who wants to go meet with the startups, that, that might be what they would like to do. But for the average person, uh, you know, maybe you and me, uh, we would get on a ferry. It takes about half an hour. You go down to a, a small town on the coast called Half Moon Bay. You go in through the port there and you get on a you get in your car, you get on a bus, you go to wherever you'd like to go here in the Bay Area. What kind of businesses
3: do people want to start up? It's not
6: steel mills or anything like that. Most of them are the sort of things you traditionally find here in Silicon Valley and, and people traditionally think about, such as... Uh, you know, creating apps or or mobile, social, local, et cetera, software companies, internet companies, but we also have a number of other interesting ones. We have some in the biotech space. We have some in robotics, uh, hardware companies. So I think the more we get in there, the more diversity of different ideas and companies, the the more interesting a place it'll be for for everyone. I mean, sure, you you know you're going to be living in a in a room the size of a cabin that you'd find on a cruise ship, but you do have the advantage of being very closely connected with everybody. You're going to be networking with these people all the time. You're going to find them in the cafes. You're going to be talking to them about your latest project.
3: What about the countries that have shown interest? or rather, I should say, the entrepreneurs around the world that have shown interest. Can you describe what parts of the world are represented in that list? Sure. So oddly enough, one might say,
6: a quarter of them actually come from the U.S., so there, there are people here are all around the, the U.S. who say this would be just such, such an awesome place to start a company and be able to collaborate uh, in a really close way with people who have new ideas bringing them from all around the world. The other 75% come from, like I said, uh, 61 different countries. Most represented country in that sample is India. Uh, That's followed by the U.K. and then uh, Canada, Australia, Spain. Most of the representation up towards the top, the ones that that have the most people coming, is most of the developed world, and that's no surprise, right? You just have a lot of people who have cool startup ideas and and are coming from a space where they've been exposed to that for a large portion of their lives. But a lot of them are also coming from less developed countries in South America and, and Africa and such.
3: So I guess my final question to you, Max, is to see this idea really float, so to speak, you need to raise enough money to build this thing. You can't start small. You got to start big. How you doing there? Is this going to happen? And if so, when do you see it actually taken to the seas?
6: Well, as we've been saying, you know, there's a lot of people really interested in it. We also have some investors who are very interested. A uh, lowest estimate here. Um, would be something like $40 million. In order to be able to purchase one of these ships, you have to fix it up. You have to add office space because no cruise ship comes with office space. You have to create a whole new way to moor it into the seabed. And then you have to, uh, you have to open doors. So, so that doesn't come cheap. But thankfully, there's a lot of money rolling around in this area. And there's a lot of people who are very interested in seeing something like this happen. So even really radical and audacious uh, ways to solve problems, I think, can, uh, can come about.
3: Well, Max Marty, thanks so much for talking to me about what uh, floats your boat. And by the way, if you want a, a refill on that coffee, the machine's just down the hall. Oh, great, great. The first time was a little a uh, little cold. Maybe you can get it hot, hot this time. You don't count on it. Thanks. Goodbye, Seth. Yeah.
6: You said the coffee machine was just down the hall, Seth?
3: Yeah. Great. Thanks, Max. That's an incredible
2: project that Max described. I just can't imagine that there would be this floating Silicon Valley ship Somewhere off the coast of California where all this work would be done. It's like a little, I don't know, island nation unto itself.
3: Yeah, well, it certainly is exciting. I mean, you know, I've been on plenty of cruises, and and all all that happens is you spend money and you bulk up. But here you might actually earn some money.
2: It sounds like Max has a good chance of seizing control
3: of this project. I've got to wave that one off.
2: Max Marty, by the way, is the CEO and the co founder of Blue Seed here in the Silicon Valley.
3: Coming up, what happens when a little bit of biology takes the middle seat next to you on that next flight and spreads itself around the world? We're going global
2: on big picture science.
4: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: There is one little bit of biology whose ability to jet-set around the globe also gives it the potential to change itself in ways that are dramatic and dangerous, and
2: you can't see it. Without a microscope, a virus can sit for decades in the body of a chimp living in the African jungles or in a bat in an Asian cave, and the world would never know the difference. Even the host animal might never sense the internal company it keeps. It might live in symbiotic harmony without symptoms, this virus and animal, for the natural life of the latter. However...
3: When that ecological bubble is breached by a predator or a tourist then the virus may no longer have boundaries. It might move from one species to another in what's known as a jump or spillover.
2: Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic is the chilling title of journalist David Quammen's book about the insalubrious effects of living in a world that is getting smaller with each new road or airport we build. And the talented storyteller, whose previous book about island biogeography, The Song of the Dodo, described the unique evolution of life on islands, now describes the opposite, evolution without geographic boundaries. There is a scary downside to globalization in the mobility
3: of disease. Of course, we shared disease during the 14th century's Black Plague and the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919, but that was before widespread air travel and the massive clear-cutting of forests. However, what most terrifying pandemics share is their zoonotic origin. Almost all devastating human diseases begin in an animal.
0: A zoonosis is an animal infection transmissible to humans, more, more specifically a non-human animal infection, because obviously we're animals too. So a non-human animal infection that passes to humans, and if it causes disease in humans, then it's a zoonotic disease.
2: I have a list of diseases here, and I believe that they're all zoonotic but what I'd like to know is is which one of these can be transferred human to human, because that's the next level of alarm. Right. So may I just read a couple to you? Sure. Okay. And you can tell me whether or not it can go human to human. Ebola?
0: Ebola can go human to human, yes, by direct contact with bodily fluids, not through the air, as far as we know. And that's one of the reasons why Ebola outbreaks, as horrible as they have been for people in Central Africa, have been contained. Okay. Q virus? Q fever, Q virus. Uh, as far as I know, it does not spread human to human.
2: Okay. SARS.
0: Yes, definitely. Hendra. Hendra, no evidence so far of spread from human to human. Lyme disease. Lyme disease, no evidence of, as far as I know, of it spread from human to human, carried by ticks.
2: Do you feel like you're defending the thesis of your book right now, uh, <laughs> as no, I quiz no. you? Okay. okay. I, no, there
0: are there are some big ones that spread really well uh, from human to human. Uh, so it's uh, it's one of the reasons this subject is is complicated and suspenseful as well as simply dire and important.
2: I wonder if you could give me a profile of an organism that uh, jumps species a lot, or that would be apt to jump species. And if you had to go to that spot in the world right now. If I said, just go to that spot where you think this could be happening, where would you go and could you describe that spot to me?
0: Well, yes. Let's go to Bangladesh in January or February of the year. And there's a practice in Bangladesh at that time of year of tapping the date palm trees in su- central and southern part of Bangladesh. There's, there's a date palm, a species called Phoenix sylvestra, known as the sugar date palm, and the sap is sugary like the sap of a, of a maple tree. And so people tap it. They put cuts on the tree and they put a pot underneath and they collect the sap and they leave the pot there overnight and they bring it down and they sell the sap fresh to drink in the morning. And uh, fruit bats are attracted to this sugary sap as well, so during that period overnight while the pot is hanging there, fruit bats come and visit the tap site, and they lick the the sap, and uh, they drop their feces and their urine into the clay pot, and along with that they drop a virus called Nipah, People drink the sap that's been brought down and they get something called NEpa virus encephalitis uh, it's a serious problem in Bangladesh
2: how does NEPA present itself as, as a disease
0: well it presents itself with with high fever uh, headache body aches um, a certain amount of confusion and then it uh, and then it spreads to to the Spinal tissue into the brain and causes inflammation, which is, which is what we mean by encephalitis.
2: Now, I thought you might give a portrait of one of the exotic food markets that you came across, where all sorts of different animals are in cages and are being sold. Can you give me a, a portrait of what these exotic fairs are like?
0: Well, this is this is a, a situation both in in Africa, particularly Central Africa, where I've spent a lot of time, and in Southern China, where I've spent a little bit of time. In Southern China, there is a vogue for what they call wild flavor, which is eating wildlife. And uh, they're interested in all sorts of different species. Palm civets, which are type of animal that's related to mongooses. Porcupines, bamboo rats, which is a sort of a giant rat that looks like a badger or a beaver.
2: And what do these two scenes have in common, the one where where the date palm sap is collected and bats also like to take a dip into that sap, and then also these, these food markets? Why are both of these examples of ideal places for a spillover or at least a jump from a virus from one species to another?
0: Well, there's a couple of things that they share in common. First of all, they involve close contact between wild animals and humans, either direct by us handling and eating them or indirect by us um, drinking something that they've defecated and urinated into. Um, They both involve bats as reservoirs. Nipah virus uh, has its reservoir in giant fruit bats, and the virus that became infamous to the world as SARS also, we know now, has its reservoir in bats. Another thing they have in common is that both of those two, the SARS coronavirus is, is what it's more technically called, and the Nipah virus are RNA viruses, which means that they have a high mutation rate. So these particular viruses are especially prone to managing to adapt to humans once they've spilled over into humans.
2: Now, the subtitle of your book is Animal Infections in the Next Human Pandemic, but as I was reading, I felt like the subtitle could be From Bats to Humans. What is it about bats that make them a common reservoir of what becomes human disease?
0: What is it about bats? That's a question that many of these scientists are asking themselves. And I asked many of them, what is it about bats? Because bats do seem to be disproportionately represented as reservoirs of many of these emerging viruses. Uh, There are a couple of possible answers. One is that they're actually not disproportionately represented. Bats are a very, very diverse group of animals. In fact, one in every five species of mammal is a bat. So if one in every five kinds of virus that we get from mammals is coming from a bat, then it is proportional. But it seems to be more than that. They are very sociable creatures. They live together, roost together in huge aggregations, thousands and thousands of bats piled together literally, sometimes five or six deep on the wall of a cave. They also live to be quite old, much older than other small mammals. A bat might live to be 18 or 20 years old. So that combination of things alone represents a more stable, welcoming environment for a virus.
2: You spent years researching this book and traveling all over the world, and there are scenes that you describe of being in a bat cave in China or on on a roof in Bangladesh with scientists who are trying to capture bats and take Mm -hmm. a sample of their blood or at least to collect their their feces or so forth. And um, you seem rather unflinching as you describe it, but I'm just wondering if you weren't terrified. You have bats swarming all over you. There's (laughs) guano everywhere. These diseases are not to be trifled with. It's Nipah or it's Marburg. Weren't you scared out of your boots?
0: I wasn't particularly scared because I was following whatever precautions the scientists I was with were following, and I trusted them. I trusted their knowledge, trusted their professionalism. These were amazing people. and and uh, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to this subject is it combines the importance of of a, a public health and medical, crisis with the wonders of wildlife biology. There are a lot of wonderful creatures and wonderful adventures that I got to go on in researching this book. And some of those wonderful creatures are the scientists who do the work, who put on the hazmat suits and go into the caves in in Africa to look for the reservoir of Marburg. Uh, and but to me, c-
2: come on, David, that's sitting back home now, saying that, are you telling me that as you're walking into this bat cave, and I don't know if bats are brushing up against you, are they?
0: Um, I didn't have any bonk me in the head.
2: (laughs) Okay. And, you know, you're not supposed to touch anything because there, you know, could be bat feces or whatever. You were admiring the scientists and not thinking one of these bats could be a reservoir for a deadly disease and I might get that disease. You
0: know, it's funny, Molly. Um, When I first read about Ebola virus... I don't know how long ago, 15 or 20 years ago, I thought, oh, that's unbelievably scary. I would never go anywhere where that virus was. I wouldn't want to be in the same forest. I don't think I'd want to be in the same country. But the more I learned about it, the more my irrational fears were replaced by rational fears, irrational concerns, the less preternatural these creatures seemed, the more uh, cautious good sense came into play as a way to protect yourself against them, uh, and and the less concerned I felt.
2: Now, is the reason that some of these diseases are emerging, some of these infectious diseases, is it because we're having more contact with more exotic animals? And do they need to be exotic, however we define that, and one person's exotic animal is not another's? Mm-hmm. Because we're not getting sick from our, our dogs and our parakeets and our cats, are we?
0: Well, we can get sick from our domestic animals just as they can get sick from us but if you have a dog or a cat and you've gotten the the usual vaccinations for it certainly including rabies then then the chances are that you're not going to pick up anything new because we've had such a history of contact with those animals we're being exposed to these new scary exotic emerging viruses mostly through animals that we haven't had a long history of uh, domestic contact with we're pushing ever more insistently into the into the wild ecosystems on the planet the places where lots and lots of biological diversity resides and uh, and because we're so interconnected now we humans because the world is so globalized we travel everywhere we're moving ourselves around and moving our products around Because of that, once one of these new viruses gets into us and takes hold and is able to transmit human to human, then the chances are very good it's going to go around the world.
2: This really gets at the subject of of evolution, Um, and it's a subject you have written about before. You wrote a book in the 1990s called Song of the Dodo which I read about island biogeography and the unique evolutionary pressures on islands. And there are similar themes in this book, Spillover, about emerging diseases, that of a powerful evolutionary force working on a species, whether it's an an animal Mm -hmm. on an island or, in this case, a virus, and the portrait that you paint of a world within a world and what happens when those worlds collide.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, There have been many, many wondrous island species that have gone extinct in the last 300 years because they had evolved to live in these little isolated ecosystems on islands where they had uh, they had not many enemies. So the birds became gigantic and flightless. Um, the reptiles tended to become gigantic. Some of the mammals became dwarf. They changed in a lot of ways. And then humans started moving around. We showed up in those uh, island ecosystems, and we brought rats and monkeys and mongooses along with us. And the island endemics didn't have defenses against those those new predators, and, and so they were driven extinct. In this case, it's sort of the converse of that. What we're talking about is not species or, or organisms that are isolated, but organisms, particularly viruses. They're moving from uh, having occupied a fairly small ecological niche, maybe infecting one species of monkey that's not very abundant in Central Africa to spilling over into humans, adapting to humans and then they can travel around the world. Then they have 7 billion potential hosts. So it's, this is of course what happened with with HIV with the AIDS virus.
2: Now your book was really a a riveting read from beginning to end but it was the penultimate chapter on the origin of AIDS that In some ways, your whole book was really moving towards this chapter. And you make the case that lest any of us wonder why we're talking about exotic diseases, such as Marburg or Ebola or so forth, you need to consider the trajectory and the devastation of age, which was another zoonotic disease.
0: We now know, based on work that's come out in scientific journals just in the last five years or so, uh, that the crucial spillover that created the AIDS pandemic occurred in southeastern Cameroon from one chimp to one human at a point much earlier than what we have been led to believe. It occurred around 1908 or earlier, give or take a margin of error. Just the virus that lives in non-human primates that represents the precursor of HIV has spilled over into humans 12 times that we know of 12 independent spillovers of the simian virus. And of those 12, only one of them accounts for most of the AIDS cases around the world. The other 11 have been far less significant. But what that tells us is that this is not an an improbable event. This kind of spillover is happening a lot. And there easily could be another one that results in a pandemic as bad as HIV.
2: David Quammen, thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: Molly, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for your interest in this subject. And I hope we haven't been too gruesome. But it's, as I say, both a fascinating subject and a very important one. David Quammen is a science journalist and author of Spillover,
3: Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic.
2: Well... It's a scary scenario, Seth, the idea that these viruses can travel around the world and we can do our best to monitor them, but um, the virus really has its own agenda.
3: Yeah. Well, this is one of those uh, unfortunate cases of unexpected consequences. You make uh, mobility greater for everyone, including things that you really don't want to spread.
2: Thanks to our worldly production staff, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Rena Scholsky david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ears have been attuned to going global, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program, Big Picture Science? You can leave your comments there as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, it circles the globe faster than you do, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.